Welcome to Crossing the Chasm, a sound physician's podcast covering a broad range of topics relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare. And now, here's your host, Dr. Greg Johnson. Throughout this season of Crossing the Chasm, we've explored a variety of different areas, mentorship, We've certainly evaluated the opportunities of what clinical integration from a healthcare system looks like. Uh, We've evaluated the educational system and its impact in in terms of uh, addressing diversity, equity, inclusion in healthcare. In this episode, we get another opportunity to highlight a variety of different areas that really demonstrate that DEI isn't a discrete topic, but something that really requires a holistic approach in terms of its consideration and acknowledging its impact. This episode's guest really spends time discussing not only the impact of the criminal justice system, but also weaves in the history of diversity, equity, inclusion from the uh, component of education and then noting how all of that plays into her work uh, as a DEI leader within uh, an academic health system. It encourages me to recognize and quite honestly educates me as well in terms of recognizing the variety of areas where DEI impacts our patients, our health systems, and our overall society. And so I'm very pleased to bring to you this particular episode of Crossing the Chasm. Enjoy the episode. For this episode, I am joined by Ada Walker. Uh, Ada serves as Vice President and Chief Inclusion and Diversity Officer at Nebraska Medicine, um, where she provides leadership, vision, and strategy for advancing a holistic framework for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, prior to being at Nebraska Medicine, uh, Ada served as Assistant Vice President for Access and Inclusive Excellence at Auburn University and Director of Inclusive Student Excellence at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, her alma mater, where she also got to, uh, attended law school. Um, she's been active in creating and developing and implementing comprehensive DEI strategies for over a decade. Um, and she uses her legal training as well as insight from her former law practice uh, to have measurable impact on outcomes for historically upper, underrepresented populations. Welcome, Ada. So happy to have you here. Wow. Was that really me? That's <laughs> totally like, you. <laughs> sometimes I sit down and think about, you know, my journey and how I ended up um, working in health equity. And so hearing it read back is like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm sitting in the chair I'm sitting in today. How did you get to the chair uh, that you're sitting in right now? Well, when I really reflect on how I kind of landed in the equity and inclusion space, it really goes back to my time at UNC Chapel Hill. As a student, I was a member of the Minority Student Recruitment Committee. I was what we called the on-campus coordinator for a program called Project Uplift, where we brought about 1,200 underrepresented students on campus each summer to really get um, 
exposure to college life. And the goal was always, you know, we want to pers- we want students to pursue higher education. Um, and if you come to UNC, great. And of course, our impact outcomes were wonderful because our framework really was designed around this idea of excellence and seeing student first generation college students, um, historically underrepresented students, um, students from rural counties really leaning into higher education. So that was my background and framework. I didn't know how to name that. I didn't know what job would look like for that. Um, and so I ended up going to law school, which I would I would not replace that time um, at all. I think it was one of the most transformative experiences of my life. I always say like undergrad um, gave me a voice. Um, law school taught me how to use it. And so now um, I've been able to take what I've learned from both my very short-lived law practice um, and apply those teachings and learnings to um, advancing equity. And so right after I practiced law, I went back to working at UNC and the program that gave me my first start. So I was the director of Project Uplift, right? So I'm like, oh, this is so full circle. And I thought that I was like, this is it. I never want another job again. This is where I want to be for the rest of my life. And then I started to understand strategy and understand that, you know, under the programmatic aspect is critically important, but until we can um, unpack policy and practices at the systems level, we're not going to be able to have the impacts, um, the, the sustainable impacts that we often seek. And so from there, I was able to really lean into strategy at um, Auburn University. And um, I became very reflective on what are the things that are gonna make people live their lives better every single day? And I really feel like it's the justice system and health healthcare. And so this opportunity at Nebraska Medicine came um, came about and I traveled to Omaha, absolutely fell in love with the city. And here I am doing really great work with a team of amazing people within our health system. That is a tremendous story and a huge credit to uh, your UNC for helping to develop that in you and, and find it and develop in you. Um, that's that's a it's really great to hear and share that you you continue to, to highlight it. And I really want to delve more into it because you bring together two things that I don't know. Everybody connects all the time. Right. The, like healthcare, healthcare, justice system and legal system most people tend to think of over here. How did you bring those two together to really develop your career? Well, when I think about kind of like systems and systems level thinking, um, healthcare is a system, the justice system is a system, and, and there are rules and regulations and um, and policies that are designed by people that impact the average citizen. And so um, being able to kind of like take some of those transferable skills from a law practice into understanding health equity, I think has been really eye-opening for me, for my team and for Nebraska Medicine. Um, Just last week, we opened up our Community Wellness Collaborative, which is a physical space in the Highlander community um, of North Omaha. And what's special about this location is that it is within a zip code that has been negatively impacted by redlining. Again, you know, laws, policies, practices. And so as a health system, being able to invest time, resources, and and working with community to undo past harm, I think is really, really incredible. And so that's just like one example of how you see these 
interesting intersections of um, law and justice and health outcomes, particularly around social determinants or social drivers of health, which is what we will really be addressing within our community wellness collaborative. So tell us, tell the audience and me, like, what's your role in terms of developing that? Was this sort of an identified need from the from Nebraska Medicine? Was it a need stated from the community in terms of, hey, we need this level of support? How, how did that particular collaborative come together? So 75 North, um, the I would say like the quarterback of the purpose-built community um, of the Highlander, um, they, they, they came to many of the health systems. They came to us and said, you know, one of our key pillars is health. Um, in addition to education access and, and financial wellness and um, access to safe housing. And so um, we we responded in a way of really making sure like, okay, is this something, this isn't something Nebraska medicine is just doing to community, right? This is something where community called us in. And then we engaged in a group of community advisors who are, you know, paid consultants who helped us think about from the community perspective, is this the right decision? And if so, what does it look like to enter into community with authenticity and meaning and clarity? And so um, after, going through, honestly, a couple of years of um, analysis, we we came up with a concept that allowed us to honor the our commitment and at the same time make sure that community is leading out front. I think that's fascinating in terms of your underscoring probably the most important fun for me, which was it was Nebraska medicine. Mm -hmm. Right. Dictating what the community needed. Um, and I know that in prior discussions that we've had, it is really understanding that it, you know, it's a collaborative. It is collaboration and understanding what are your needs? What can we meet? We're not going to be able to meet everything as Nebraska Medicine or any other external um, organization. But what are we ultimately going to be able to 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 do and deliver? So I think that's really important. Um, and I I never mind actually like when I heard from you that, oh, hey, this is going to take a little bit of time. Like it's going to take a couple of years for this to develop and really underscore what, um, um, what you know, where this was going to, uh, how this was going to come together. Can I give you another really great example of how we're partnering with yes. community and the collaborative? So um, in Nebraska, October is Black Maternal Health Month. And IB Black Girl is an organization within Nebraska that has just really taken the forefront on um, addressing the barriers and access to care for Black birthing individuals. And um, we know from a uh, research perspective that doula care and in, in ensuring that birthing individuals have doulas is a critical part of increasing and enhancing birth outcomes. And so Ivy Black Girl developed um, an incredible program called the Doula Passage Program, where they are going into community and identifying potential doulas, training doulas. And this past spring, they graduated 39 African-American or Black doulas who um, are now going to have I would say like direct entree into patients who need that support. Nebraska Medicine was able to um, participate in the curriculum, right? Ivy Black Girl just really showed up for community in this one. We've also established a scholarship where um, 
birthing individuals can receive a grant so that they can pay for the doula services. And so when we when we operate within an ecosystem where community leads out front, the collaboration can be, I mean, we haven't even like scratched the surface surface of what collaboration can look like. And so that's the type of programming that we want to continue to build on in the community wellness collaborative. Um, and, and I think the partnership with Ivy Black Girl is just an example of like what it means to work with community to enhance health outcomes. Well, and again, you're, you're pointing out a holistic approach, right? It's the community from a variety of different angles, not for profit. I, I think it's you're, you're a board member of Variety Black Girl, right? right. <laughs> and so it's it's looking at it from that perspective, understanding how the um, the healthcare institution um, also integrates, and then and, and then coming from the community, and so it really is a holistic approach in terms of um, focusing on an equitable outcome, in this case, maternal health equity, which we've discussed any number of times is, um, I don't think it's any more of a priority than it has been. It's just received a lot more attention of late simply because of some high profile deaths, unfortunately. Yes. So we've, we, I, I came into this discussion and promised myself I wasn't going to run uh, run amok because I like the more I was reading about the things that you're involved in, the more I was like, oh, we have to talk about that. And then I was like, right, yeah, 45 minutes. Uh, <laughs> but you were discussing, you know, getting back into some of the things that you've done um, previously, you discussed structure and the importance of structure as well as the, as moving from the academic world of concepts and into like how does this apply in real life and you've written about uh, a couple of specific um, topics specifically motivated awareness and um, inclusive integrity and I, I wanted to stop on these topics or pause on these topics because as a DEI leader <laughs> We are in an environment today where, like, you wrote about this two years before it became like really heavy, which is that now we have states and and other institutions that are weighing in heavily on we this. You know, people talk about like um, I, I never get this right with my kids, and they'll be embarrassed when they hear the, the this. But right, it's that um, oh yeah, you know they 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 want to erase this from uh, you know the you, you know you get written off. I I never get the term right, which I'm totally dating myself for those who are listening. But it tell canceled? me about your thoughts. They want okay. canceled. Thank you. It's canceling <laughs> DEI, um, which is a shame that I can't remember that, but everybody can joke on me. You know, Jay is laughing at us right now, or at least at me right now. He, they want to cancel DEI, and there are people that are actively doing this, and you wrote about this two years ago. Please tell us about these concepts, and please tell us about like what your thoughts are on current state and how you and your leadership role are um, working against it, since obviously DEI is, as you've already articulated, is super important to you. So I would, um, I've been talking about this a lot lately because when I think about the role of the CDO and the cons the current state concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, they were really birthed in higher education. So 40, 45 years ago, and Daryl G. Smith has an incredible book, um, um, that she wrote around like kind of the evolution of the diversity practitioner. And so 
words change, but our commitment to humanity does not. And so even when we think about um, historically, we had offices of minority affairs and they were offices of multicultural affairs. And now we have offices of inclusion and diversity. And I think motivated awareness is a concept that allows us to understand context and work, do the important work of meeting people within their identity. Um, and I think that happens at a internal, external, and organizational level. And so understanding kind of the, like the breadth and depth of identity without having to um, be beholden to um, concepts that might feel like they're fleeting because they're not. And I think I, I have a, the privilege of understanding the depth of the work I'm doing because I grew up in it. And I have incredible mentors who paved the way for the current state, right? Now, the question is, what does future state look like? And that's why I feel like in something like inclusive integrity is a concept that allows us to move into a future state. Inclusive integrity is all about making um, places and spaces where we can operate with dignity and respect um, and as, as foundational principles. Um, inclusive integrity asks us to do the really hard things and, and, and sometimes it's uncomfortable. And as healthcare practitioners, as um, administrators, as human beings, I think that we've all been called to choose humanity and, and make the tough call. And, and it's not always easy. And sometimes it can be lonely. But at the end of the day, when we center the needs of the people who surround us, I feel like inclusive integrity will always win. And so I believe in that concept. Um, because it allows us to operate with dignity and respect. And that's that's really where I'm putting my emphasis and, and my focus on with, with the understanding of where we've been historically and where we're going. Dr. Johnson, I have a lot of hope for our world. I do. I think that we can get so we can feel devastated with the weight of everything that's happening around us. And that devastation should not stop us from pursuing our equity goals. And that's for me what inclusive integrity requires. And, and I, I think there are people called into these spaces who can show up and who will show up. And so I am hopeful for the future because I know that the people that I meet every day want to live in a world where everyone feels like they're respected, they're seen, they're valued. And, and that's all I'm really working towards. No, I, 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 when you said choose humanity, literally the, the minute that you said it, and I was just like, it's that simple. And it's, and far from simple, but it's simple to articulate. It's, you know, the challenges making sure that it occurs um, and it occurs on a daily basis and there's intentionality about it. And I thank you for your optimism because I think that that is a prerequisite for um, all of us in terms of seeking, you know, a better future for our patients um, and for our respective communities. Um, Jay, I'm I'm looking at you. You can't tell I'm looking at you, um, but I'm looking at you because I I I think I know that look. So I'm going to let you. <laughs> I'm going to make sure that you ask your questions. Yeah, um, and there's so much 
so much here. I got my gears turning, lots of questions. Um, but I think one thing I, I, I circle back to is when you were talking about really working in communities, you said uh, entering communities with authenticity. Um, and I think it just made me think a little bit, just really wanting to, to understand both in terms of your work, but even maybe giving advice to other people, you know, really, how, how do you how do you do that? Like, how do you come into a community and, and want to come alongside and be a partner? I think a lot of times you hear these stories of like, you know, organizations or people coming in best of intentions and it, and it fizzles out because, you know, I, I don't know exactly the exact reasons, but I think maybe the partnership doesn't come in quite at the right place. Um, and it does seem like, you know, that entering with authenticity probably is the foundation. Um, and just kind of wondering to, to learn a little bit more about that. I think, being able to enter into a space with authenticity requires cultural humility and cultural humility just asks us to you know again reflect on our actions and our why and having the courage to be wrong and name that we were wrong and do the work to mitigate and understand. Um, I think authenticity is equivalent to understanding um, and having the ability to recognize who should be at the table, what questions need to be um, asked um, as you're entering into the spaces and also being willing to say, you know what, I'm not the expert in this room. I'm not the expert in this space. For Nebraska Medicine, that looked like building real partnerships with existing community partners, organizations, nonprofits, um, our College of Public Health, people who are already doing the work. And instead of coming, we know what we're doing. We're the health system. No, like I am not from Omaha. You know, I walk in with my heart open, my eyes clear. Oh gosh, there's this show Friday Night Lights. Um, and I don't know if anyone's ever watched it, but it's like clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Can't lose. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to have a clear eyes and a full heart. And for me, that looked like first at Nebraska. And I, Jay, this, I'm taking you back probably farther than you want, but building a team within our health system that understood our long-term goals. And so um, Shonda Ross, who's our director of engagement, outreach, and belonging, is a mastermind in terms of building coalition and connection. And it was it was her engagement showing up when it was hard to show up, um, being present, um, the power of presence, right? Like I'm not showing up to ask for something or to give something. I'm, I'm showing up in spaces and places just because I want to learn. I want to understand what's happening at this event. You know, who's leading? Who can I meet? And I think it's all about building relationships. So you can't even get to the point of pursuing collaboration if you don't have any relationships. And so when I, as I'm talking through and thinking through this, it's really about establishing understanding um, through relationships with a posture of cultural humility. And that I think is what entering into a space with authenticity could and can and should look like because it's very easy to want to do it the quick way. And, and the quick way is not the sustainable way. That's, that's absolutely for sure uh, in terms of knowing that anything, you know, it's, I, I always go back to the builder's triangle. That's always my, it's quick, fast, and good. <laughs> and 
quick, you know, you know, quick, cheap and good. Sorry. And I was like, anything that's quick and cheap is never going to be good. And to your point, it's usually you want, um, you know, you, you want to make sure that it's that those things are really stable uh, and that there's, you know, the and if it does need to be quick, then there needs to be meaningful investment to make sure that it, it is sustained. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, I do what I do every uh, time, which is delve in and, and, and ping people with question after question after question. And so want to give you space to ask us back what's on your mind, what questions are there. We, we always get uh, some pretty interesting ones that most of the time that make uh, that force us both to think. So as I um, kind of worked through uh, multiple issues um, related to health equity, you know, I've come across some topics around that, that feel redundant. Like, I feel like we talked about this 30, 40 years ago. And so most recently, um, there's a study, um, not a study, there's um, clear research that shows that there is a resurgence of syphilis and other um, uh, sexually transmitted diseases that the government or the United States government or healthcare systems work to address long ago. And so I'm just curious from your perspective, you know, how, how do we work through past harm that's like showing up as a current harm as well from a clinical perspective? And what are some things that um, health systems can do to address those those issues? It's a great question. And you're right. It does feel like we've discussed this time and time again. I know I repeatedly refer back to, um, you know, the, the Institute of Medicine, now National Academy of Medicine's report, um, uh, uh, unequal treatment, which is 20 years old. But if you go and read the report, it looks very much like what current state is. And there's obviously a lot of improvements that we can make. I, I think, you know, first of all, I tell everybody refer to unequal treatment because the recommendations that are in the report are absolutely relevant today. And when institutions or even individuals are looking for their opportunities, it's an excellent place to just say, where do I start? Because so much of that. But, you know, to your point about referring back to past harm and what the what's gone on today, you know, if we do what you referred to uh, earlier in terms of choosing humanity, it's really the healthcare system. Individuals, including myself, that have trained in the healthcare system, first acknowledging complicity in creating the problem. People seem to have a problem with that. But the simple fact of the matter is that when you say, hey, I am fundamentally aware that the healthcare system has mistreated people who look like you, you are a historically disenfranchised community, this has happened to you. Doesn't mean that I've intentionally done it, but it's there, acknowledged now. <laughs> Same thing with any other apology. It's now acknowledge that this is what's going to be different. 
here's how we have invested. I, as a practitioner of healthcare, as a physician, am now spending more time listening to you, meeting you where you need, and this isn't a unidirectional conversation, but now a how do I meet you where you need, right? So everybody's like, oh, you need fresh foods, fruits and vegetables to do this. Well, if you don't have a refrigerator because you can't afford it, that's not a real solution, right? So how, to your point, how do we invest the time in acknowledging the past wrong and then acknowledging what the corrective action is, even if it's a longer path as you, as we already discussed? Those are the requirements and it's super challenging in the clinical space because time is not our friend. You know, for those who are in primary care, we're talking, you got a 10, 15 minute visit, you got to get in, you got to get their question, and then people have to come back. Understanding that many of the people that need the most, the most help from us had to take a bus ride or walk or do all sorts of other things just to get to the clinic if they get care in a clinic. Otherwise, they're showing up in our emergency departments that quite honestly, aren't resourced to the appropriate area of care. But to me, it starts with acknowledging complicity, stating it openly, and then stating what's going to be different. Because that's how, you know, when we get back into the things that have been most meaningful to healthcare, and COVID, as usual, was one of the things that highlighted it, communities were looking for trusted leaders to have the dialogue with them about what it meant to receive healthcare in a healthcare crisis. And in many instances that, 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 that trust has been broken because of all of this past stuff. So you've got to clean that up in order to reestablish it, work within the community as you've stated and create the time that's necessary to do it. It's not easy um, given the, the economics of the situation, but it's I do think it is again what's required. Well, and, you know, building trust um, can sometimes be hard as you were, you know, shaping what that means from a clinician's perspective. You know, there can be someone in a community who is doing the work of building trust and then something happens and they move, you know, who, how do we, how do we build trusting relationships beyond a single person? So exactly. Begin to trust um I don't want to use the term institution, but um, a broader body of yeah, organizations, entities, whatever, yes, whatever yes. is required. Yeah, I mean, it's part of the reason why we, those of us who are focused on health equity, understand that. And again, you've already articulated it. The solution is multifactorial. Yes, there's clinical work that has to be done. You asked me about that. To your point, you've already articulated a structural change, a literal structural change, but as a structure that is in place that is that becomes the touchstone for the community. There are financial implications in terms of how this has to work, understanding that, and, and we've had this discussed on prior episodes where it's it's pay, payment reform, payment restructuring. Um, all of these are required elements to be able to do that To And again, to avoid the, uh, well, Jay already referred to it and you did too, which is, oh yeah, solution was dropped in. Somebody moved, different opportunity, and there is no next person up. And that, that has to be part of the solution. 
I'm sorry, that was total soapbox moment. I, I shouldn't do that. <laughs> I love it. We have to get on our soapboxes sometimes so that people can hear the great words we have and, and perspectives. Well, and I have a question tied to that for for both of you is, you know, uh, chief inclusion officer, chief diversity officer, because, you know, the other part of, of what Greg's saying to, to be able to drive that is, is re the reality is the people within your organizations. And, you know, I know from personally, just even talking to my friends and about the work, you know, whether it's a podcast or the work with assistant Greg, I've got a wide gamut of people, some who really passionate and, and love it. And I have others that kind of you know, roll their eyes, good people, but they're just cynical or they have a poor view or a wrong view of, of DEI. And I know, you know, you guys as leaders driving that, you have a whole workforce where you really are, you know, you need them to be the boots on the ground to do a lot of these things. And so I'm just wondering from your perspective on just how do you kind of, you know, affect the, the hearts or minds or I'm not sure exactly you know how you're you're changing people. Hopefully, you're educating people, um, creating awareness so that they can, you know, not just simply do the work, but believe in it. And just kind of wondering, you know, some of the challenges or, um, you know, your approach to that. So, I think about this um, from multiple perspectives, especially from when I when I'm centering inclusive integrity because. I think growing up, I thought that, or growing up in this work, I thought that advocacy looked only one way. Like, if you're not raising your hand and saying something and being the loudest person in the meeting, you don't, you, you're not here for it. You know, you're not, you're not doing, um, you're not doing this work right. And as I've matured and understood uh, human capacity and how our, and how who we are and how we're raised and the environments that we come from shape how we navigate the world, like our personalities and, and, and our lived experiences shape how we engage with one another. It is unrealistic and unfair to set expectations for how you will pursue a life that treats everyone with dignity and respect. It's not fair for me to think that you're going to do it the way I do it. And so I know we often say meet people where they are, but I don't think everyone knows what that really means. Meeting someone where they are could, could mean affirming someone who sends you a private message and says, you know what, I don't understand this concept. I don't get it. And being able to say, and I'm speaking Zoom language, so I hope you... Five years ago, y'all might not have understood what I meant by saying, but, but you're in a Zoom meeting. Picture it. Sicily, 1983. No, picture it. You're in a Zoom meeting um, and, you know, someone sends you a private message and says, you know what? I don't know if I, I agree with this. This topic doesn't make sense to me. Or, you know what? I, I don't, this doesn't feel right for me. To be able to affirm and say, thank you. Thank you so much for speaking up. I, I really appreciate you asking. Let's go grab coffee and chat. Like that's an example of how you meet someone where they are. Or I've had a question of, you know, you know, Ada, I don't really feel comfortable calling people out in a meeting. That's just not my style. And like, if it's not your style, don't do it because that's the opposite of authenticity. Find the ways in which you can be an advocate. And sometimes if you're a policy writer, an advocate is changing language to be more inclusive. No one ever really knows that that happened, but it, you have the knowledge and skills to shift something within your sphere of influence. And I think giving people permission to operate within their sphere of influence based off of who they are and not pretending to be someone else is one really important way 
to call people into the work so it doesn't feel so isolating and alienating and you know like that's just not me there are so many ways that we can show up for one another and i think that in my time over the past few years i've learned more i i've I've built personal capacity for affirming others in their journey. And I think that's what our goal is. Like we want your journey to, to be reflective of a life that centers humanity. Um, I had a really great conversation yesterday with our our learning, our DEI learning specialist. And, you know, these are her words. And so I can't, I'm not going to take responsibility for them. They're so good though. I wish I could, but I'm not, she said, you know, I'm really trying to help people recognize that you aren't, you, your first thought isn't something, isn't always what you believe is something that you've learned. So taking time to reflect on your first thought and say, oh, is that what I believe? Or is that something that's a product of my environment? And then giving yourself grace for your first thought, because your first thought isn't necessarily what you believe now or what you will believe in the future. So your second thought, your third thought, those are the ones that we, those are the thoughts that we own. Those are the thoughts and actions that we can take responsibility for and hold ourselves accountable for. So as we're teaching about unconscious bias and we're teaching about understanding microaggressions, recognizing that that first thought, that that first experience, that first entry into this conversation, there's growth that should occur. And I think creating space for growth is what this is honestly all about. That is 100% what it's about. And um, it's, uh, and people grow at different rates and people are starting from various points. And they, um, I think is a variation on your theme of inclusive integrity, but it is coming into the space, understanding that <laughs> and understanding that, um, you know, if we're, if everybody is growing 1%, that 1% may be in a different portion of the spectrum than you are or where you're even familiar and maybe even before where you started, that's okay. 1% is 1% and let's get to people to grow and, and improve. And I just want to say, I, I really love what you're talking about, just kind of meeting people where they are and not projecting, you know, your your views on them. Because it's it's so funny. I'm I'm a, a newlywed, you know, I'm what, eight months into being married. And in this relationship, I'm learning like, you know, gee, just because I think this is the best way to do something as simple as cook eggs, you know, maybe I, I, should, I shouldn't try and project that onto, onto my wife. And if it's in like your most deepest intimate relationship, you can't have that approach. How much more true is that when it's like nine, 10 circles out, you know, coming in and just trying to tell people this is the best ways to, you know, if it doesn't work with my spouse, it's definitely not going to work with people that, you know, know me in a, in a very light professional way. Future topic, Jay. Listen, I will break my my partner, uh, Matt Walker, who is an audiologist, some of healthcare adjacent, but we can talk about relationships. Oh my gosh. You are <laughs> you hit the nail on the head. There are so many ways that you can fold bed sheets. There's so many ways that, you know, you like you said, cook an egg, you know, pull the car in, you know, and all of those little everyday things that we just kind of like run through. The person that you're closest with likely learned how to do it in a completely different way. So finding that point in the middle is, oh, it's a journey, but it's fun. It can be exciting. And um, I think that that's such a great analogy to the work we're doing in, in the equity space as well. 
Oh, fantastic. And your your energy is infectious. I'm sure that the folks at Nebraska Medicine also feed off of that as well. Well, we are coming near the, uh, our uh, designated time um, for us to end, but we always uh, ask our guests, talk to us about a, a topic that you would love to hear uh, about or a guest that you would recommend, knowing that if you recommend a guest, we're going to ask you to help us to find them. <laughs> well, you know, I... I really am intrigued by this idea of um, recognizing the intrapersonal and interpersonal stages of um, building and pursuing health equity. Because until we understand ourselves better and understand how we communicate with others, it's very difficult to um, have broader impacts. Um, someone I would recommend is Dr. Timothy Fair. Um, he is the chief diversity officer for Burlington Industry. So this is not, this is healthcare adjacent, but I think absolutely relevant. Um, I would, from an, I know I brought up uh, some infectious disease work earlier. I recommend Dr. Jasmine Marcellin here at Nebraska Medicine. Um, she's an incredible practitioner. Um, we, we touched on primary care and um, the experiences that um, our primary care physicians are facing. So um, Dr. Drea Jones here at Nebraska Medicine um, is the medical director of one of our clinics. I think she'd be another great voice to add to this conversation. Um, I could talk to you all all day, so I'm kind of sad that we're at our time. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I hope this isn't the last time we're able to see each other and speak to one another. Well, oh, I'm I'm 100% sure that uh, that's not the case because uh, both of our organizations are with, involved with CEO Action, which um, which was actually how we found each other, and uh, we're, we'll continue to to uh, do that work together. Um, but uh, you, you've already invited yourself back, and so we've uh, we will absolutely take you up on that while uh, helping to identify some of the other folks that came on. Uh, I, and I really appreciate your being here. Thank you so much, um, not only for your expertise, but your energy and most importantly, your commitment um, to uh, diversity, equity, inclusion. Uh, and um, we are going to be super happy. We're super happy to have you on now and we're super happy to have you back um, in the very near future. So thank you. Thank you both so much. And I hope you have a great day. This was fun. Thank you for joining us for Crossing the Chasm, a Sound Physicians podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Crossing the Chasm wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Physicians is a multi-specialty medical group committed to improving quality and reducing the cost of healthcare for patients in communities across the country. Learn more at www.soundphysicians.com.